Thank you, Nicola. Good morning. It's a real privilege to be with you. Our story in Luke chapter 10 really begins in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 4, as Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In so doing, Jesus preached one of the shortest sermons on record. If you have any hopes that I'm going to repeat that today, I'm really sorry. I'll be speaking for a little longer. But what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is that each of those elements which were part of that Galilean manifesto are fulfilled in his later life and ministry. He goes on to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, etc. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus does not only bring recovery of sight to the physically blind. He also brings recovery of sight to those who are blind to what God is doing in the world. And our two stories today from Luke chapter 10 are an example of ways in which Luke sees Jesus bringing recovery of sight to those who are blind to what he's doing. These two stories, one after the other, are stories of generosity on love. On the face of it, one is a story of love for neighbor, and the other is a story about love for God. And so the great commandment of love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself are tied up in these stories. But of course, they are more than that. Because first we see a story of sacrificial generosity in the Samaritan, and then selfless generosity among the sisters. Luke paints a picture for us which declares eloquently that the kingdom of God includes unlikely suspects. And if you ever doubt that, simply look to your left and to your right, and you'll see some of the unlikely suspects that are part of the kingdom of God. But let's come now to the first of these stories, a story of sacrificial generosity. I think it's one of the most powerful stories that we have in the Bible, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that speaks of many things. It's a story told to answer a very simple but profound question. Who is my neighbor? This is also a story of generosity in the face of racial prejudice. The story itself is not very difficult to understand. A man is robbed and beaten. He is stripped naked and he is left for dead on a notorious stretch of road. His death seems certain. But thank God there was a priest passing by. Help appeared to be at hand, but the priest passed by on the other side. Luke offers no explanation as to why the priest does not stop. Was it because the priest was afraid of robbers? Was it because the priest was afraid of becoming ritually unclean? Was it simply because the priest was in a hurry? Priests are busy people. Luke offers us no explanation, and actually Luke doesn't care what the explanation is. Why the priest did not stop is not the important point. The important point is this, no help came 
from one who might have been expected to help. A Levite, second person, came along the same road. Guess what? He also passed by on the other side. We're less surprised by this. If the priest doesn't help, we're probably not shocked that a Levite similarly declines to help. But before we get judgmental, let's imagine together for a moment. Think of a rough neighborhood. It's a bit difficult where we are right now. But I'm sure you can think of one. With a particular passage or road or alley that's a bit dodgy. And as you go through, you see a man tossed in the corner on the ground. And he is stark naked. Now, are you sure that you would stop to help. Because I've got to tell you, I'm not sure that I would. By now we are ready for the third character to enter the story. Because all the best stories require three characters, don't they? An Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman walked into a bar. I know a fantastic joke about a Methodist, a Presbyterian, and a Baptist. My wife tells me I could never tell that story in a sermon. The best stories have three characters. Most people would have expected an ordinary Israelite to be the third character in Jesus' story. If so, this would have been an anti-priest story. Others would have expected God or an angel of the Lord to be the third character in the story. It would then have been a story of how God is faithful even when those who should be working for God fail to meet our expectations. But Jesus confounds their expectation because the third character is a Samaritan. A Samaritan. A Samaritan. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus might as well have said that a Nazi turned up. Or a member of the Ku Klux Klan turned up. A a suicide bomber turned up. A, A BNP member turned up. Look. Jesus could have said Donald Trump turned up and it wouldn't have been any more surprising. (laughs) This is not how they imagine this story is going to turn out. This shockingly unlikely figure of the Samaritan is moved with pity. He tends to the man's wounds. He puts him on his own donkey and takes him to an inn. And then he leaves money two silver coins, an enormous amount of money at that time in order for this man to be cared for and promises if it costs more, he will pay the difference the next time he's passing through. That's an incredible level of generosity because you might expect that the man himself, if he recovers, should come and pay any difference. But no, this Samaritan, for a man whose name he does not know, for someone he's never met, is generous. What is it that moves a man, a Samaritan, to give so generously, to give in a way that is costly, to give with no expectation of receiving it back, to give when his own well-being is at stake, and to do all of this for a stranger who almost certainly despises him because he is a Samaritan and the man he is helping is a Jew. What is it that compels a man to stop when others pass by, to care when others do not, to respond spontaneously when he sees a need? This is what generosity looks like. 
This is what it looks like, Jesus says, to love our neighbors. This is what it means to be generous in ways that are costly. A willingness to engage when no one else will. A largeness of heart to be able to respond spontaneously to people, even those who are not our kind of people. What we see in this Samaritan is the capacity to love our enemies. The punchline in this story, of course, is this. Even Samaritans can be generous. Even Samaritans have the capacity to teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus ends the parable by asking the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? And I love this response because the lawyer can't quite bring himself to say the word Samaritan, I think. And so he says, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus' response is, go and do likewise. Samaritans are unlikely suspects. And Jesus, in telling this story, seeks to offer recovery of sight to those who are blind. But if the Good Samaritan story addresses what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, the next story deals with what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and strength. And I think Luke is doing something quite radical here, nearly as radical as the story of a generous Samaritan. For Jesus is portrayed as relying on the hospitality of two women. One of them, Martha, is portrayed as the host. She looks after Jesus' need. And indeed, given that this encounter with Martha happens as Jesus and his disciples went on their way, verse 38, it's likely that Martha is a host not only for Jesus, but for his disciples as well. That's a fairly radical thing for Luke to depict in his time and culture. For if Luke simply wanted to tell a story of what it means to love the Lord with all the heart, then this story would have worked just as well if the two main characters were men. But the two primary characters in this story are women. And in a culture that was patriarchal, as it was at the time, this becomes a much more edgy story in a culture which privileged men and took for granted that Jesus' disciples would have been male. Luke is making the point, a point that perhaps is easily lost on us in the 21st century, but which would have been a much more big deal in the 1st century, that not only can Samaritans be generous, even women, shock horror, can be generous. But this is more than a story of generosity in unexpected places. What we have here is two approaches to authentic generosity, each of which is rooted in love for God and devotion to Christ. Martha is rightly concerned with hospitality, with caring for the visitor. There is a very long biblical tradition of the importance of hospitality in that part of the world. Indeed, the book of Hebrews goes as far to encourage Christians to care for the stranger because the writer of Hebrews says this, in so doing, we sometimes entertain angels unawares. Jesus, of course, is not a stranger. Jesus is an honored guest. Mary and Martha only turn up in two portions of scripture here in Luke 10. And you might remember that they turn up also in the Gospel of John, for they are sisters of Lazarus, who is raised from the dead in John 11. And so John chapter 12 
11 and 12, and here in Luke 10. If they are the same Mary and Martha, and they almost certainly are, Jesus is a very, very honored guest. The demand for radical generosity and hospitality is therefore even greater. And so if you ask Martha, how do you express love for God? She would say, acts of service. And of course, that's what the Samaritan does. He expresses his love by serving. And then there is Mary. Mary expresses her devotion to God by sitting at the feet of Jesus. Unlike Martha, Mary doesn't want to do something for Jesus. She wants to give to Jesus her very self. She gives him her undivided attention. She wants to sit at his feet and listen to him. And in many ways, this is the contrast between these two women. Martha tells Jesus what to say. Tell Mary to help me. Mary, on the other hand, listens to what Jesus has to say. She doesn't speak in the entire story. If you look at those few verses, Mary is silent throughout. In many ways, then, this is a story of love languages. Are you familiar with that theory that there are five different love languages that we speak and which we use to receive and communicate love? Mary's love language is acts of service. I get, sorry, Martha's love language is acts of service. I get Martha. Anybody whose love language is acts of service? Few of us? Totally get Martha. Martha says this, if I love you, my instinct is to serve you. I may not say the words. I won't necessarily buy you gifts to demonstrate it. I may not spend loads of time with you. I may not give you hugs. But if I get a chance to serve you, that's my moment. I will give you everything I've got. For Mary, on the other hand, her love language appears to be quality time. Anybody's love language, quality time? You see, people whose love language is quality time, they're not really interested in doing things for you. They want to do things with you. She wants to give Jesus her undivided attention. It's not that she's unaware that the rules of hospitality require her to behave in a particular way. She simply says this, Jesus, we may not eat tonight because I'm not going to leave your side to go into the kitchen. I am sitting at your feet and I am offering you the thing that is most precious to me. I am giving you my undivided attention. For those of us for, whose, for whom our love language is acts of service, that just winds us up. It makes me angry looking at Mary. I think, please. I'm with Martha totally. Martha says, Jesus is coming to dinner and you want to sit around? Girlfriend, please. <laughs> Martha is so clear that her way is the right way. She is certain that Jesus is going to share her view. And given what we've just heard about the Good Samaritan, who demonstrates love by acts of service, we, the readers, might expect Jesus to share Martha's view. But he does not. He says Mary has chosen the good portion. Some translations say the better portion, though the Greek does not support this. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. In many ways, this story balances the previous one. If we are ever inclined to think that our devotion to God can only be expressed through acts of service... This story reminds us 
But it is also important to give our very selves to God, to give our undivided attention to God is important also. Selfless generosity by giving ourselves is also an expression of loving God with our whole heart and mind and strength. The wonderful thing that Luke offers to us by putting these two stories next to one another is a reminder that our expressions of love do not have to look identical. We don't need to give the same things and we cannot impose on others to say, unless you're doing what I'm doing in devotion to God, it doesn't count. Martha offers hospitality and so expresses her love. Mary offers her undivided attention and so expresses her love and discipleship. And that's one of the wonderful things that this story does. For by placing Mary at the feet of Jesus, it places her in the posture of discipleship. Those who have worked in primary schools will have seen that image all the time of a teacher with children sitting at his or her feet. That's what disciples do. Authentic generosity occurs when we give what we have, give who we are as an expression of our love to God. In these two stories then, Luke reminds us that unless we are blind to the workings of God, we will see evidence of the kingdom in unexpected places. We will see it among Samaritans. We will see it in these unlikely women in a culture that is patriarchal. I want to finish simply by asking this question. Who are we blind to? Who are the people who are Samaritans to us? And how might we be blind to God's working among us? Who are the people that we're inclined to think not the right kind of people? Others like the sisters who are not the right gender, whether the right race or education, and therefore can be easily ignored. Luke paints a picture of a Jesus who is able to cure us of our blindness. The problem with this kind of blindness is that it's very difficult for us to see what we're missing. For we live in a world that is so often blind to injustice. Thinking of women, how is it that despite the Equal Pay Act coming into law in 1970, nearly 50 years ago, that we are still today talking about women not receiving equal pay for equal work? Our blindness needs to be healed. How is it that more than two generations on from the Windrush generation, we are still a society marked by individual and systemic racial injustice? We're still in need of healing of our blindness. So, Lord, heal our blindness. Help us to see the contours of your kingdom in unexpected places.